0: Well, we are in the midst of a series of messages called The Grave Robber, where we're talking about the miraculous things that Jesus did on his way to the cross in the book of John. There are seven recorded miracles, and we are closing in on finishing that off. Two weeks from today is Easter, and so we've got today and two more weeks of miracles to do. And today we're going to talk about one of my favorite miracles, one of the ones that really speaks to me, and particularly uh, not really from the book of John, from the uh, details we get from a couple of the other Gospels. But before we do that, I, I want to start with a, a little test with you. I know how much y'all love tests, right? Absolutely. Excited about that? I got a few really excited. This test was invented by a guy named Herman Warshak. And he thought he could tell a lot about a person by what they saw in the inkblot. blot. So here's what I want you to do, all right? I want you to turn to somebody around you, and I want you to tell them, what do you see in the ink blot? All right, anybody got any? What, what do you see there? A bat? What else do you see? A waterfall? Is that what I said? What, what did you say? Do I want to know what you said, Marley? What you Two chihuahuas and a Taco Bell. That is not... I don't think that's on I, I really don't know what that says about you. I'll tell you what I see. I see a bat. I see the wings of the bat, the bat here, the head here going here, and he's carrying some sort of bell. I don't know what that is. But so how many of you saw a bat? All right. How many of you saw a butterfly or a moth or something like that? All right. Those are the three most common. Surprisingly, the two chihuahuas at Taco Bell did not show up on the most known things. All right. So we got another one. Here's a second one. Turn around, tell somebody around you what you see. All right, what do you what do you got? Who's got something for me? Well, that's, a, that's a lot of people at once, and that's an ink blot. Thanks, that helps a lot there. All right, here's an interesting thing. Of all the images, this is one of the most difficult images for people to, to think about. Some people think it is some sort of animal descending from above, about to attack them. Somebody I won't mention, but who works our sound booth every week, um, sees a dragon with the head here and the wings coming up. The reason I didn't want to mention it because it says some bad things about people that see a dragon. No, not really. Some people see an animal rug, like on a laid out on a floor. Anybody see any of that? You saw the dragon? Yeah, okay. All right, do we have one more? Is that it, Steve? Here's the last one. All right, tell somebody around what you see. All right, anybody got something for me? What do you got? Two guinea pigs? High-fiving? All right. Anybody else got anything? The, the most common things are that these are two people giving high-fives to each other, or guinea pigs, if you're Courtney. All right. Some people see a bear. One of the things is, because there's red on it, People see blood in the midst of it. Somehow, some kind of violent thing is happening. Here's the point. They said that these kind of pictures, our experience helps to determine what we see. In fact, there's a really interesting one, and I don't have a picture of it, but there's this really interesting one that, um, if you know what a TED Talk is, a guy gave a TED Talk on this online. About one image that when you put it up, adults almost always, I mean like 95 to 100% of the time, they see a couple embracing each other. When they show it to kids, they see nine dolphins. And they said, "How in the, if, if you're an adult, you'll well, go, how do you see nine dolphins if you're a kid? You'll go, how do you see that? How do you see a couple embracing? And psychologists say, It's because the kids have no basis of experience to put the embracing couple into their mind. So what do you do when something happens that's completely new and out of anything you've experienced before? What do you do when something happens that you can't explain Today, we're going to look, and I really want to think about this particular miracle from the perception of the disciples, of the apostles. And um, if we're in John chapter 6, if you've got your Bibles and want to go in and turn there, what I want to really think about is what are they experiencing? And if you were with us last week, we talked around this particular miracle. We talked about what happened before it and after it. We kind of skipped over it because I wanted to deal with it this week on its own. But the disciples encounter something that they have never experienced before they're in the boat they're going against the wind and they can't get any traction going forward and they turn around and something is coming to them on the lake now we know if you've been in church at all you know it's it's what it's it's jesus coming right but if you're them you don't know it's jesus because things don't walk on the lake So what do you do when something like that happens? Now, we do know, by the way, that there are things that do walk on water. Do you know that, that there are things that walk on water? For instance, there's this insect. It's called the pond skater, and it walks on water. We know that there's a lizard that, when threatened, for instance, by a snake, will take off and literally run on water. And we even know that in the movies, one of the greatest heroes of all time was a kid who, when given the chance to escape, actually ran on water. But here's the thing. Humans don't run on water, right? How many of you ever walked on water before? No hands went up, right? Right. Because we can't do it. In fact, scientists have said we could do it if we could run around 67 miles per hour. We could do it. Now, I don't care how fast you think you are. You're not that fast. The fastest any humans ever runs around 27 miles per hour. And that was just for 100 yards. So what do you do when you're the disciples in the boat? And walking on the water towards you is Something. What do you do in your life when something unexplainable happens, when something that's too coincidental happens? What do you do when God seems to show up or when something is calling you to a new experience? How do you react? There are really four ways you can react. You can ignore it, just stick your head in the sand. I don't know. Can you imagine the disciples that night? Like, everybody down, heads down. Right? You can just not believe it. Remember, if you were here the first week we did this this series, we talked about Thomas Jefferson who literally cut all of the miracles out of his Bible because he just didn't believe them. You can try to explain it. In fact, there there were some scientists who tried to figure out if it was humanly possible for Jesus to walk on water without divine intervention. And they discovered that they said, this is what they said, they they, they, talked to meteorologists and others, that every thousand years... The circumstances could possibly be right for ice to form on the Sea of Galilee that would allow someone to hop across different patches of ice to get there. Now, I don't know what's more miraculous to believe that Jesus walked on water or that the one time he decided he needed to go across the lake without a boat, it happened to be the one time in a thousand years when little ice was there. And can you get the picture of Jesus like surfing out on the ice? And he tried to explain it away. That's honestly what our society tries to do with anything of God what's the logical understanding what do we do about it or you can embrace it and say I don't know what's going on here but I'm going to go with God with whatever it means John chapter 6 starts off like this in our story perceiving then That they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Now remember, this is from last week. They were going to come make him king because he had just fed 5,000 people with just five loaves of bread and two fish. And he was going to feed thousands with that. And so they said, we want this guy to be king. If he's king, we never get hungry again. We don't have any dependence on the Romans because we don't have to worry about that. We just have our own thing. And so they come to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark. Now, some people think that there's some symbolic understanding of this word. Yes, it literally was dark, but there's also this essence in the book of John when John talks so much about darkness and light that in the absence of Jesus is only darkness. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Let me just ask a question. How did they think Jesus was going to come? If you're the disciples and you think Jesus is going to meet us sometime, how is he going to meet us? In a boat, right? So they're looking, they don't see a boat. And the sea became rough. In fact, in one version of this, in one of the chapters, it describes almost like a storm happening. It was several hundred feet below sea level that the winds would come over the mountains and they would wrap around and before long it would just kind of come. And they never knew when it was coming. I mean, I know today we have like 21 day forecast that are about as accurate as their one day forecast back then, right? Well, they had no idea when weather was coming. They didn't have anybody on TV. Leland Statham didn't tell them that it was coming. The sea was rough because a strong wind was blowing. In fact, one version of this says that they couldn't make headway. When they had rowed about three or four miles. Now, I haven't rowed a lot lately, but that's a long way to row. They saw Jesus walking on the sea. And coming near the boat, and they were, what would you be? Frightened, scared. Jesus says to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. By the way, that's a miracle that doesn't really get talked about. But apparently in John's version, when he gets in the boat, not only is everything calmed down, they arrive. Now we're talking about another mile or two they had to go like that. But here's the interesting thing. That little phrase, it is I, th- that's not the actual translation of it. The actual translation is, I am. And the book of John is specifically giving statements that Jesus gives about who he is. Then over and over again, he will say, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. But when he comes to the disciples and he is walking on the water, doing something that no human being can physically do, that we have not in any way ever seen in the history of the world before, during or since that time, he says to them not that, hey, it's me, it's Jesus. He says to them, I am. If you were here last week, we talked about the fact that in the Jewish understanding, the greatest prophet was a guy named Moses. And Moses was a guy that showed that he was one with God, that he was on God's path by feeding the people in the wilderness and walking through dry land of the Red Sea. After Jesus has fed the people in the wilderness with food that is not there, he then walks on top of the sea and declares to the people in the boat, I'm not just a prophet like Moses. I am that I am. The book of John is very specific that these miracles are not done in a vacuum, that they're done to show us something about Jesus. And the walking on the water is to make us go. Only a God could do that. And Jesus declares, I am. But you know what I love about this story? I love that Jesus decided this was the best way to get there. I mean, Jesus had all kinds of options, right? Are are you here, right? He could have gotten a boat. I mean, even you miraculous power. There's lots of ways he could have done this. I love the fact that it's almost like he's, I can imagine, and listen, this is speculation, it's not in Scripture, but I can imagine him walking out there like, I can't wait till those guys see me. Like, I can't wait to see the looks on their faces, right? In our house. We have one of one of our four kids is one of those that likes to, like, hide and then jump out. Anybody have a kid like that or somebody, like, likes to hide and jump out at you? And the other day, I, I, I mean, I knew that's Luke. Luke is the one that likes to, like, hide. Like, we'll go look for him in his room. He's hiding in the closet waiting, you know. And we hear him because he's laughing waiting for us to find him, right? And the other night, we were leaving here. And, you know, one of the things that I love about people that like to prank is to, Frank them, right? And so Luke was coming around the, the van and I saw him and I went the other way and I jumped, I went, ah, and he about lost it in the middle of the parking lot. I imagine Jesus is walking out there thinking, I can't wait to see these, the look on these guys' faces. You know what I love about Jesus? Is that Jesus was a daredevil. He was a guy that didn't do things conventionally. He, he did things that were risky. He stepped out of comfort zones and did things that are unexplainable. I mean, when you think about Jesus, you, you think about the phrase daredevil. What do you think of when you hear the phrase daredevil? What's that? Evil Knievel. You think of people that do stunts. You know, one of my favorite families that do stunts is the Walinda family. I don't know if you've seen this guy that's been on, that's been walking, but this is Nick Walinda walking 1,500 feet above the Grand Canyon. And here's the thing about Nick Walinda. His family, by the way, all strong believers, followers of Jesus Christ. Nick Walinda, some of you are having problems even watching that, all right? He does this without any safety net. And he said the reason that he does it without a safety net is because his dad told him that safety nets are false securities and that in life you've got to live without the safety net. Nicolenda is a daredevil and here's the interesting thing about that particular word. The word comes from a literally split it apart it's one who dares the devil. It's one who goes after the enemy. When I say Jesus was a daredevil when you think about it he was a guy who 40 days fought hand to hand combat in the wilderness. And while he didn't necessarily walk across the Grand Canyon, he did walk through life continually confronting the evil that was found in the enemy. And Jesus, as he's walking on the water, is doing one of these stunts that can't be explained and that none of us could fathom. And he's doing it to point out who he is. And the most remarkable thing about the story to me is what he does. And this isn't found actually in John's account. It's found in Matthew's account. But he then invites one of the disciples to be a daredevil with him. And here's the truth for you and me Jesus desires for us to join him in being a daredevil. He calls us to be people who passionately live for him and are constantly. Going against the enemy, proclaiming who Jesus is in our life for the people around us. The first thing we have to do, though, in order to be that daredevil with Jesus is we have to learn to recognize the presence of God when it's there. I want to look at this story from from Mark's perspective first, and then we'll go to Matthew in a minute, because it's the same story. They just include some details. Others include ones that aren't there. And in Mark's Campbell, he says, And when evening came, the boat was out at the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Now, by the way, just, just to let you know, if they were three to four miles out, Jesus could no way at night see them literally with normal eyes. But he knew. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And I love this next, this next part, what it says. He meant... To pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out for they all saw him and were terrified. He meant to pass them by. That, that phrase is a phrase that's used in the Old Testament. It's used in the New Testament. For when God intends to show something of himself for the people that are watching. It's the same kind of phrase that's used when Moses is walking by the burning bush and he stops and he looks at it. It's the same kind of phrase for you and me when God is working in our lives and we are to stop and to turn aside and to look at what God is doing. And here's my question to you. Are you willing? Are you able? Are you looking for God's work in your life? Are you asking God to work? Are you looking for ways that he is working and moving in your life? Because if we never look for that or ask for it or, or are paying attention to it, then what happens is we miss out on opportunities that God intends for us to do. My father-in-law is here, and this afternoon he leaves to go to Brazil. One of those long trips. He's leaving this afternoon and be back Friday. So four days of flying, two or three days of being on the ground. And I think back to... Um, if you're around me very much at all, you know the heart that I have for Brazil. There, I'm envious of him leaving this afternoon. And I think back to 1998. I was scheduled to go on a mission trip with Union University to Costa Rica. Brazil wasn't on my radar, and I vividly remember having a conversation with him, like, I, I think you ought to go. Now, I joke about the fact that I think he just did that because I was marrying his daughter that summer, and he was like, I've got to spend a week with this guy to make sure he's okay. But I look back now and I see the undeniable truth that God was moving and it was one of my chances to be able to get on board with what he was doing. Seven, eight trips later, I have never regretted for a moment turning aside for that moment. I just want to be honest with you. It's good for all of us to be together and to be here. And God is in the midst of doing some things in this church. But if God's going to do all that He intends to do, it's going to require you and I to begin to notice where He's working and to move in that direction. And some of you in this room are going to miss out on the miraculous work that God wants to do because you are too set in what you already think He ought to be doing. And if you're not careful, you'll miss the experience. The first step for all of these people in the boat was that they had to recognize that it was God. And I love this because it says they cried out when they were terrified. In fact, um, it reminds us in the book of Matthew, and we'll look at that in a minute, that they yelled, it's a ghost! And it wasn't like, you know, like they were talking to myself, like, hey, do y'all think that's a ghost out there? I mean, it was like, it's a ghost! Like a horror movie has come to life! Get in the boat! And when they recognized that it wasn't a ghost, but it was their Savior, it was their Messiah, it was their King. The only option you have once you realize God is in the midst of doing something exciting and amazing is you have to get out of the boat. You can't stay there. It's John Ortberg that says that the other 11 guys, he calls them boat potatoes because they don't do anything but sit there. It's not enough to recognize, boy, God's really doing some things over there. Or, wow, God's really moving there. Listen, we're we're going back to Los Angeles this summer. We're going back to Brazil this summer. And it's not just because, hey, those are really cool places to go, although they are really cool places to go. It's because there is a genuine sense from my heart and from the heart of those that are planning that trip that God is doing some amazing work in those places. And we get to be a part of that. And I know that's tough sometimes when you see mission trip pictures and you're like, well, they're having a great time. Yeah, we do have a great time. But we are in on the ground floor of some amazing ministry that we don't get to experience here because that's a place God is moving in a different way. And the truth is some of you in this room need to be involved in that ministry or Lynch, Kentucky, or the next door ministry downtown, or Room at the Inn, or Brazil, or L.A., or you need to be involved in some ministry, but you're not because you've stuck yourself in the boat and you said, I'm not getting out. Anybody hear about a recliner? How many of you got a recliner in your home? You know what? I love that recliner. You know the problem with the recliner when I get in it? I do, well, I don't go to sleep, Charles. I'm not there, but I don't want to get out. Although I do go to sleep sometimes, right? It's comfortable. What do they call those? What are the most famous brand of those? Lazy boys. We got a lot of people in churches all across this country, in church, this one here, that are comfortable as can be, and they're lazy boys, and they're fine not getting out of the boat to do anything. But if you want to experience the presence and the power of God, you get out of the boat. Here's what it tells us in Matthew, this is Matthew's version. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and says, "It's a ghost," and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus stoked them and said, "Take heart, it is, I." same phrase, I am. Do not be afraid." It goes on to tell us. And Peter answered him. I love Peter here. Peter sometimes gets it wrong, but this is one of those places he gets it right. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Now, I don't know if Peter was tested him. I don't know if Peter was the first guy to get in line on a brand new roller coaster. Just like, man, i got to get in on this. This is amazing. I don't know what happens, but he says, if it's you, tell me to come. And Jesus uses just one simple word. Come. And look at this. So Peter climbed out of the boat. He would have had to get out of the boat. And Peter walked on the water. I want to tell you this. There's a, there's a financial guy that uses a phrase that says, if you want to live like no one else when you're older, you must live like no one else today. And the idea is you, you take care of everything you're supposed to financially and you don't get into debt, and you don't do tons of stuff. And when you're older, you'll be so thankful that you did that. Well, here's the truth. If you want to live a life that is more amazing than anything anybody's ever seen, you've got to take chances that are more amazing than anything anybody's ever seen. You see, we, have, we somehow have made Jesus into this meek and mild, compassionate guy that wasn't near as daring as he was in Scripture. In fact, there's a quote, I think I skipped over this, Steve, so you might have to go back, by Dorothy Sayers, that talks about how we've tamed Jesus. Look at what she says. She says, the people who hanged Christ never, to do them justice, accused him of being a bore. They never said he was boring or uneventful. In fact, what was their biggest accusation of him? That he partied, that he had lunch with Sinners and prostitutes, right? And so they accused him of being a boy. They did not do that. They thought him too dynamic to be safe. They thought he was too crazy that he was stirring people up. And then she says this. It has been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. Even if you don't know what the word tedium means, you just hear it in the sound, right? Monotonous nothing. We have efficiently... Paired the claws of the lion of Judah, certified him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. That's not tame, is it? But neither was Jesus. That phrase it cuts me to the heart because I ask myself the question: Where in my life have I not allowed God? To do something radically bold with me. Where have I paired the claws of the lion of Judah? If you want to walk on water. You got to get out of the boat. And here's the last thing. You got to keep focused on Jesus. I mean you know this right. You grew up in church. If you know. If you heard this story. Peter gets out. He starts to walk. And then what does he do? He starts to fall. Why does he fall? Because he takes his focus off of Jesus. Scripture says this, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, "Lord, save me!" Jesus immediately reached out, took hold of his hand, saying, "Oh, you of little faith! Why did you doubt?" And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, "Truly, you are the Son of God." Here's the thing: sometimes. You make a bold decision for Christ and you take that step out onto the water and then the first thing you do is you notice all the things in your life that are going wrong. Can I tell you something? If you truly step out on faith and following Jesus, you know what's going to happen? The enemy is going to attack. I tell people this. First time you ever commit to go to Brazil, I tell people this. You will be attacked by the enemy as soon as you commit. God will sustain you. He will bring things to you. But it's because you are boldly stepping out. The enemy is going to attack. And in the midst of that, you've got to stay focused on him. So here's the question. What's God calling you out on the water to do? And are you willing to be a daredevil with Jesus? If that means changing careers, even though you are satisfied and good position and you won't ever have to give it up, but you know God's got something else for you. Maybe that's boldly stepping out and going to one of these trips this summer. Maybe that's boldly going across the street to share your faith with your neighbor. Maybe that's sharing with the person that sits next to you in school. What is it that God has called you to step out on the water with? And are you willing to trust Him completely? I'm going to show you a picture real quick and then tell you a story about a guy. This is a guy named Elisha Otis. And my guess is that you... If I just put this picture up, none of you would have known that's Elisha Otis. But everyone in this room is thankful for Elisha Otis because he invented something that's very important called the braking system on elevators. And it is said that every three days, the amount of people that ride on his elevator somewhere in the world is equal to the number of people that are on the earth. The most successful elevator company was started by this guy in the 1800s, but he couldn't sell his elevators, and he was the problem. Elevators could only go six floors, and then people weren't safe enough to let them because they couldn't get a braking system. So in 1854, at a kind of trade show, Elisha Otis got on top of a huge platform that had been built with his elevator on it and his new braking system, and he stood on top there with a crowd around, and he said cut the cable. And for the first time in history, an elevator started to descend and as it descended with the cable being cut, the braking system worked and Elisha Otis was saved. Afterwards, his business exploded. When they talked to him years later, they said, what made the difference in you becoming this worldwide elevator company? He said, it was because I had the guts to cut the cable. I read this week of a company that makes bulletproof vest. And the vests they make are so thin that people don't believe they're bulletproof. And so when they go to trade shows to sell them, they will put their bulletproof vest on a volunteer and then shoot them. Anybody volunteering for that? Here's the truth. If you want to follow Jesus, it's going to mean there are going to be moments of reckless endangerment. It means there are going to be moments when you've got to yell, cut the cable, and we'll see what happens. When you step out of the boat and you start to walk on the water, when you put on the vest and let someone shoot. Where is Christ asking you to cut the cable today? Let's pray together.